Today, my guest is Peter Chilvers, who's a software developer and a musician. And a lot of the projects that he's done have combined those two things to make some really interesting projects with various collaborators throughout his career. Um, and I actually studied music technology at university, and your work is the kind of work that people were referencing in our projects, which makes me think that you're a bit of a pioneer in these things because there wasn't much for you to reference when you started doing these projects. So how did you get involved with mixing music and technology? Um, well, uh, actually, firstly, I didn't know we were being um, looked at in uh, music courses. That's very nice to hear. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that's news to me. Um, yeah, I, I've been very lucky in that I've worked with both computing and music from very early on. Um, my mother was a... Uh, programmer back in the late 50s early 60s I think so back in sort of days of writing on punch cards so um, I grew up in the 70s but even before we had a computer she was teaching me the ideas of programming um, and that gave me an incredible head start on that so um, so around the late 70s I kind of had an idea of what computers could do and then I think I got my first computer in early 80s um, and alongside that I'd been playing the piano for as long as I can remember um, so it's always been nice to try and combine the two, and I'd always wanted to. Um, my first chance was in the mid-90s when um, I was working at a um, computer games uh, company. And um, we had a game called Creatures, which involved you bringing up creatures in this very large environment, which you'd spend a lot of time in, often in one place. And it didn't really suit the more what was then the more normal type of approach for computer games music of having um, a single piece sort of loop constantly. It needed something more sort of to sit in the background comfortably. Um, and so that introduced me to generative music and the idea of creating music that just sort of constantly wafted around and changed. Um, and I'd always been very familiar with uh, Brian Eno's work. Um, and I found myself tackling a lot of the same problems he was trying to tackle, but for a different reason. He, he was trying to make generative musical systems because he, well, he liked the idea. He wanted to create music that just could sit in the room the way a painting does, that would just be a constant presence in a room and in my case I was having to do the same sort of thing but for a virtual space in a computer game so it, it directed me towards trying to write ambient music basically and um, generative music which is the term Brian coined for that type of music. It's been over 10 years since you've been working with Brian Eno. Yes I, um, I was wondering 14 in fact. <laughs> so it's, um, 14 years? Yeah I'm quite surprised to realise how, how quickly it's gone by. <laughs> so what was the first project the two of you worked together on and how did you actually get in touch and realise that you'd worked together so well? Um, it came down to creatures funnily enough actually. Um, I'd long since left this um, games company and moved into at the time I was just doing um, web development so um, and the programmer who was behind the idea for Creatures, the sort of um, inventor, a guy called Steve Grand, um, had got to know Brian at a talk. They, they both had an enthusiasm for Conway's Game of Life. Have you ever come across it? It's, um, I haven't actually. No, what is it? Um, <laughs> I've got to try and explain it now. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, no, I do remember. Actually, it's come back. It's that thing where it's like a randomised thing where you're watching it on a computer screen and things are bouncing into each other and it's sort of... Can, is that the, yeah. I, on the right page? Yeah, it's this, it's yeah. this grid that emulates, emu emulates the properties of life with a very, very simple set of mathematical rules. Um, 
And in fact, Brian had been playing with this in um, San Francisco in the early 70s, I think. They had a, a little kit where you could play around with that. And he spent a whole month going into this place. The um, I think it's the Imaginatorium, something. It's a name like that. I can't quite remember. But he spent days on end playing with this, looking at how you could configure tiny sets of um, rules. And it would just explode into this massively complex, quite lifelike thing. And so um, I think at... At this talk, Brian met Steve Grand. Steve thought, oh, I think you'd like to talk to my friend Peter. Um, put me in touch. And then we stayed in touch by email. And then around 2006, he got asked to do the soundtrack to Spore, which um, it was it was by Will Wright, who was by the, one of the creators of, um, well, the creator of Sims. And it was this incredible life emulation emulation where you'd start with a single-celled organism go all the way up through developing into creatures developing into um sort of villages towns cities and then these incredible sort of complex civilizations across galaxies so um so quite ambitious but um he wanted a soundtrack and asked um, brian to do one um and i happened to send a, the right email just as he was starting on doing that and he said i think i need someone to translate between uh, me and computer speak so uh <laughs> I, I came in to basically do that that side of things so he'd produce music i'd then turn it into a form that was more usable by the developers typically and um i kind of didn't leave the studio after that <laughs> so i hid for a while and eventually he noticed me but, um, <laughs> but i got a job so uh i've been working with him on all sorts of things ever since After having worked for the Spore guys, you then went out and did a project, just the two of you, a thing called Bloom. Yes. And I think that might be the most famous collaboration between the two of you, or at least the longest, it's been the longest um, lasting, perhaps. Yes. Um, could you tell me a little bit about how that came about and um, what you what your impression of when it, went, when it went out into the world? It was very successful. What was it like seeing people receive it so well like that? Oh, it was incredible. Um, but I'll, I'll um, explain how it came about, really, which was as we were designing Spore, um, I felt there was way more that we could do together with um, using computers to generate music. Um, and I'd come up with this little demo where you clicked on the screen and circles appeared. And Brian used to have a Wacom tablet in his um, studio. Well, he still does, in fact, but something you can... Um, it was um, an early sort of monitor you could draw on with a stylus. And we tried it on that, and it was lovely. You could tap on the screen and a bubble would appear. And this was in about, I think, 2006, 2007, so before the iPhone had been launched, or even announced, I think. And we kind of, at the time, just thought, well, this is really nice, but um, who's going to want to pay to get some music software they can play with on their computer like this? And then the iPhone arrived, and it was a, and suddenly you had this touch screen, which was perfect for it. And... Um, because it's hard to remember now this point when we didn't all carry a powerful computer around in our pockets, but prior to that, really, we didn't. And so the idea of trying to release some music software would require users to interact with a, a computer in a way they typically didn't. To actually use a computer for that time of type of quite meditative entertainment just didn't really fit. But when you can sort of just get this device out of your pocket, tap on the screen and, and um, hear music come out of it, it was a really nice way to relax, unwind and immerse yourself in a piece of music. So the iPhone was just an incredible bit of timing for us. Um, that was right at the start of the App Store that, that yes. came out, wasn't it? So 2008 or something was like, you know, within a year of the App Store actually being launched. Yes, that's right. So I'm, I think I'd started developing it before the App Store had been launched. And I had a, had a working prototype, I think, in 2007. 
um, somewhere around then anyway, um, using Flash. And um, so as soon as the App Store was announced, um, I then set about writing it and then writing it again and writing it again because the App Store was in its infancy. Apple weren't quite expecting the level of take-up it had, so there wasn't really the documentation. So I remember when I tried to first create a sound on a computer i had to try hundreds of different ways to actually just play a pitched sound in a way that was useful to me and didn't take up too much memory and um so i i think it actually was about three months into the app store existing before we got it released but even then there were only about three thousand apps on the app store so it was quite early and i think brown yeah. was one of the first sort of um i'm not sure celebrity is the right word for brown but he was the first well-known <laughs> figure to um do something on the app store and something meaningful rather than just simply lending his name to a project. Um, and yeah, I, I, it was amazing seeing it take off. Um, it, it just, it went viral very quickly and um, yeah, it sold like nothing I'd seen. <laughs> so, because it wasn't just received by fans of, of Brian Eno's or fans of, you know, experimental music things and that kind of stuff. It was also, you know, people wrote in to you saying that, their children were using it to, you know, sort of relax and fall asleep and other things like that. It must have been really exciting to see how people were using it. It was lovely. And particularly, um, we had a couple of really nice surprises. One was, it was particularly parents of autistic children, actually, saying it calmed their children down when they were having a sort of really um, difficult episode. Um, and I've had that from a few people. I mean, I, I, both Brian and I don't want to be snake oil salesmen and suddenly say, this will cure your child. It's not that, but it's, it was really lovely to find that some people were using it to relax um we had a similar thing from a dementia patient actually as well as someone right at the other end of life she was i think in her 90s um i was told about someone in a i think it was a retirement home for her actors and she was someone who hadn't talked in a long time she really just um, communicated by tapping people's hands and apparently she played bloom and started sort of coming to life it was a type of interaction um she hadn't had i think in a long while um or probably ever in the case of bloom actually um and yeah it's just amazing to hear that um i think music can sometimes reach into people in a way that other types of therapies don't it, it taps into some little particular bit of the brain and um there was something about bloom that it required no skill but let people experience what it's like to make music and that's i think again something that hadn't really existed um prior to that Ten years on from that, the two of you decided that you wanted to use Bloom in a very different way. And in 2018, you did an installation version of it. Could you tell me a bit about how that works and how that was received? Yes, that, that, was, um, that was great fun. Um, it was, so the HoloLens um, uh, had been announced by Microsoft, which was... Um, I don't know if it was the first AR headset, but it certainly it was one of the first and one of the first high-profile ones. Um, and it was um, a design company called We Are Listen um, approached us with the idea of using it. And they, they, they'd done a lot of work um, with Microsoft. And I'm always really guarded about anyone suggesting doing something with Bloom, partly because it's, it's kind of, it's my baby, really. It's uh, something um, that I'm, I'm very protective of. But also people typically don't quite get it um, and um, come up with an idea that's much, much more cluttered and fussy. And then what they brought in was just a demonstration of how it might work. And they came into Brian's studio and suddenly I was sort of tapping in the air and seeing these glowing orbs sort of appear around me. And um, 
I thought, wow, this is it, it's hard um, hard to explain unless you tried a VR headset. But suddenly seeing something that's not real hovering in the air in front of you and looking really solid is quite magical. And um, um, so I took what they'd done and we kind of reinvented it. Um, took what Brian knew from doing installations, took what I knew about um, user experiences um, and how to how to let a user feel in control of something that really they're just a part of. Um, and we made it into this collaborative thing where if you tapped in the air in front of you, you'd see a sphere in, appear, but other people could also see it as well and they could hear it. And so it became this quite collaborative space we'd have about six to ten users at, um in the area at once um i should explain that it was in this massive configuration of um six gigantic screens i think they're about sort of three or four meters high um we called it screen henge um you just the, you'd <laughs> see um, a projection of bloom happening on each of these screens and that itself was derived from what the users inside were doing um and then inside, they could all see what each other, other was doing. And anyone waiting to go into the installation was sat outside it, watching what was happening on the screens and seeing all these people tapping in the air. I mean, you can find video footage of it, but it was, it was such a nice experience. People were interacting with strangers. They were laughing. It's not your normal... It wasn't your normal sort of very po-faced sort of um, art installation. It was quite collaborative and quite fun. Um, I'd love to do it again, and I ho hope we will at some point. Um, nearly happened twice, and um, yeah, both times missed out on it due to really just very bad timing, unfortunately. If we go back a little bit further, you worked with David Byrne and Brian Eno on their collaborative album, and I thought it was interesting that they've decided to list you as a digital archaeologist. <laughs> Um, which is a very Brian Eno thing to name someone on an album. And I was just wondering, what was it that um, what was it that you actually did for that album? Yeah. Why did you end up with that? Why did you end up with that title? It was a very accurate name, um, it, and it was Brian's idea, as usual. Um, I, one of many quite bizarre titles I've had over the projects over the years. But um, <laughs> so he had written um, a whole load of instrumental tracks, which he'd sent to David Byrne in something like I guess it must have been in early 2000s something like that it was maybe 2003 but it was before i started working with brian and um with the idea being that david would write uh music over them and then he had nothing from them and forgot about it and then suddenly and i think it was it must have been 2006 2007 2007 um um suddenly a whole load of um songs arrived by email um um he had written vocals over loads of them I mean, 10 15 it, it was a lot anyway um and it, it became the album um everything that happens will happen today I had to stop to think to remember it um but um unfortunately because all these songs had been written four years earlier they were on earlier versions of brian's stu studio computers he's been using um logic pro for years now, four years doesn't sound like a long time, but in logic terms and uh, computer software evolution, that's absolute archaeology. I had to try and go into these computers that were running older operating systems, required a dongle to get started, try and navigate through where all these files have been saved to try and find the original versions. And it's, it's not so bad now to go back four years, but in 2007, going back four years is actually incredibly complicated. It's, um, yeah. uh, it, it, thankfully software has grown up a little and they they keep a bit more of an idea of backward compatibility in mind but um 
I, I was rummaging around through old hard drives, um, different computers. It was an incredibly so, slow process on on some of the later versions of Logic, if you wanted to copy song, a song to another place, there's a button you can press and you can literally just bounce all the files at once and it'll produce separate files for you. It's all very neat. But in 2003, no one had thought to do that. So you literally had to load up a song and play back each track on its own. So a song might have 16, 32 tracks. I had to go through and output every single one of them um, in real time. So it could take hours to do just one song and um, transfer it. So it was yes, I mean it's a fantastic album. It was it was a a, a tedious job on some fantastic music. <laughs> One thing I find really interesting about your career is how often you collaborate with people. You have done solo projects and solo albums, but for the most part, you're working with a really broad range of people. You've worked with obviously Brian Eno. You've worked with Coldplay, with Robert Fripp and with different you know, marimba musicians and vibraphone players and an experimental country guitarist as well, which is, is I don't even know what that would sound like. But um, <laughs> I was just wondering, what, what do you think it is that makes for a good collaboration and what do you look for in a new collaborator? That's interesting. I think I mean, the most obvious thing is you want someone who can do something that you can't, and so that immediately opens a whole set of doors. Um, for me, that often means working with vocalists because... Um, much as I'd love to sing, I do not have a good singing voice. It's a source of constant frustration, but um, um, I, I, I need to work with other vocalists and um, ideally people who can write in a certain way. And um, my very old friend Tim Boness, and we've been working together for nearly, that's got to be nearly 30 years now. Um, but we very naturally fitted into a way of working where um, we could just produce music really, really quickly and really enjoyably and, and still do, although we don't live so near to, at the moment. So. Um, so certainly that's a part of it. I mean, Coldplay obviously can bring in a lot of things I can't do, um, they, <laughs> like being a multi-million selling band. Um, they're actually really, really lovely people to work with as well. Um, I know they get flack for generally being a big, successful band, but um, they it... it it's easy to assume there isn't a lot of talent there and there's an enormous amount of talent. I was really quite sort of shocked, actually. It's uh, Chris Martin in particular has the sort of abilities of a prog player, but they're channeled into quite often quite breezy pop songs and people don't realise how much goes into them. It's, um, um, and then Brian, obviously, is um, just <laughs> an entire universe of his own, really, with his abilities. He's um, obviously a renowned polymath. He he just can see potential in certain types of things, particularly music technology or musical ideas. As soon as he finds an idea that he hasn't used before and is interested, then he'll think of ways to work with it. Um, and a lot of what I've done, particularly with him, has been finding ways to kind of increase his reach. Um, it's been a pretty much a constant dialogue of either him saying, can we do something like this? And then I'll think about it and say, yes, but you could also do this and this might be better. Um, or then it'll be me discovering a new technology and saying, look, I've just found this, you could do this with it, like, say, touchscreens, which I don't think mm. Brian would necessarily have um, been drawn to otherwise. Um, so that's certainly been the biggest and most profound collaboration, and it's been going on for 14 years and um, shows no sign of stopping at the moment. Um, what are the two of you working on at the moment? Um, we're... Looking at other generative things, I'll be fairly cagey about what we're doing at the moment, but um, there's nothing really big in the pipeline. But I think there's um, 
we're constantly looking at new ways to work with generative music, new ways to produce things, new ways to release them, really, as well. So um, um, I think we'll we'll keep doing that. I'm, I have been helping out with stuff on the installations as well, but obviously installations have slowed down a bit since um, uh, the lockdown, so it's not so easy yeah. to suddenly just turn up in another country and um, set up a load of speakers and uh, start trying to do things. But hopefully at some point again, I'll be back to doing those as well, because they're always hugely enjoyable to do. Well, actually, they're hugely cool. stressful, but afterwards, I think they're hugely enjoyable. <laughs> Peter, what would you like to offer as your Who's Flying the Plane hidden gem? So there's a iPad app um, called Patterning, or in fact, Patterning 2 now. It's uh, got a new version, and it's a drum machine um, that lets you program your beats in a cycle Um it's a beautiful interface. You just see these inter um, interconnected circles um, showing your beat going round. Um, it doesn't sound like much, but the more you dip into it, you find you can adjust parameters that just give um, randomize some elements, give some elements a really lovely feel. You could just play around with the um, filters on them as you're going. It's got a really wonderful distortion that just makes everything sound fantastically grungy and i just find i can um happily sit down on a on a train or even um work on it in bed at night i just created hundreds and hundreds of these rhythms and i enjoy it as a an end in itself i'm i keep looking for places to put them but i don't write much upbeat music so i'm I'm slightly lost as to what to do with them sometimes but um i find it a fantastic way to create and i think it's a truly brilliant piece of software How can people keep up to date with your projects and what you're working on? Um, well, anything that's Brian Eno related tends to get announced on his Facebook page or um, Eno Shop, or I think he has a Warp page. There's there's lot there's quite a few different options or a Twitter feed, in fact, the usual. Um, but I don't tend to announce anything that I do with him before he does. Um, so because um, he has a management team that know what they're doing, <laughs> so. Um, um, I leave that. I have my own um, Facebook page, um, oddly enough, under the name Peter Chilvers. It's second cup of coffee. I had some inspiration, but um, I do occasionally <laughs> post things there. I'm, I also have a website, um, peterchilvers.com. Again, amazing name. Um, uh, a possibly more interesting one is generativemusic.com, which is where I list all the apps. Um, and um, so you, you can look in any of those places um, and. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm not very good at updating things on the whole, but Facebook is probably the area I'm fastest. Um, and I've just okay. put a little piano piece up there as well on Facebook. So if that's Great. not an incentive, I don't know what is. All right. Thanks a lot for talking to me, Peter. My pleasure. <laughs> 